Hi, you're listening to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. This podcast takes the lived experiences and knowledge of some of the leading figures and thinkers from the world of club management and beyond, all so that they can become your teacher and elevate your performance. Whether you're looking to start a career in club management, are a seasoned club manager at a world-leading club, or work elsewhere within this wonderful industry, there will be powerful messages and key takeaways that can help you in your career or personal life. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Toby Johansson. Toby is the CEO of the Club Management Association of Europe. A role he started on the 1st of September this year after spending five years as the Director of Education, where he has overseen expansion in staff and education offerings, rebranding and brought on new corporate partners. Previously, he was the CEO of the Golf Club Management Association of Sweden and Sport Director of the Swedish Volleyball Association, as well as owning a hotel in his native Sweden. Toby, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for having me. I look forward to having a nice chat with you. So firstly, introduce a few of the things you've done for your current role, but can you give us a bit more background into how you came into the club industry and maybe a bit about your early days? I owe a lot to uh, to sort of sports. I am um, like early in my life. I, I, I was a sports nerd. I was really um, into football and volleyball and handball and well basically everything that had to do with the ball brought up in Sweden and, and really just enjoying my days up until sort of getting ready for university and even then I, I choose to go and do something that back in the days was called sports pedagogics now probably the same course would be called sport management went up north to to Umeå University and sort of always been involved in clubs as a president, as a member. I have a hard time not running things. So I, I, I usually always get involved as a volunteer. So it's, it's been sort of the norm of my life. And even even as a, a young kid, I sort of set my goal on, well, <laughs> back in the day, hopefully you, you remember his name. His name was Juan Antonio Samaranch. And, and he was sort of someone I, I was looking forward to becoming or aiming for when I was young. I don't aim for that anymore, Ed. I, I don't <laughs> want to become the new Juan Antonio Samaran. It certainly has a different sort of uh, name to it now. But uh, well, the, the, the IOC back then sort of was interesting and went into my first role, became the then youngest ever Secretary General in Swedish sports. That was the Swedish Rugby Federation. And yes, we do play rugby in Sweden. We're not many, but, but yes, that was a great learning curve. For me, I spent five years in the House of Sports, which meant that we had 30, 40 other sport federations around us, as well as the Swedish Sports Federation. So got some some nice contacts. And then I moved over to my sort of well, one of my sports that I have in my heart, which is volleyball. So I went from rugby and, and took care of the national teams in volleyball and beach volleyball, as well as elite volleyball mainly. After that, I, I took a, a detour, went over to golf. As you say, the CEO of the Golf Club Management Association of Sweden, that was some great years I spent going from course to course, meeting managers, sitting down, having a coffee, listening to what what they wanted and then try to deliver it. Uh, my first year, I went out and saw 60 different managers during my years, ended up visiting 310 uh, of the Swedish golf courses. So I spent a lot of time on the road before finally sort of entering into an international role like this, uh, which has always been a dream of mine to work internationally, um, within sports, within clubs, also getting the the bonus of getting to know the the city club and all the structure over there, which for me was an an amazing new world, which you only heard about, but with some amazing people. And now five years down the line, I'm really proud to be named the CEO of, of CMAE. After five years as director of education, um, education is what we do. That's what we love. I thought it was a great idea to bring me on as the director of education. And now we're growing, we're expanding, things are happening. I don't really have a new role, but I have a new title and and really proud and 
really happy with the support of the, the board of directors and everyone involved in CMA. So there you go, Ed. And of course, that's the professional side. Can't do anything. I have to just say that I'm a proud father of two lovely boys um, the, and the wife. We're, um, we're living well here in Stockholm, Sweden. Would you say that your passion for wanting to work internationally was born from growing up watching sport being played across the world? Is that what made you want to spread out to a bigger role? From what you're saying, growing up, my idols within sports were both Swedish and from from all parts of the world. Um, You saw Premier League played every Saturday on Swedish television. So you saw that. And yes, I'm, 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 I'm certain that is a part of it. Then sports also helped me when I was bullied uh, a bit younger. So I sort of owe a lot to sports and it sort of became a passion of mine to to become involved and to give back. At university, I chose to go down to Australia for for a semester. So I did some studies at the Southern Cross University in Lismore, just south of uh, Brisbane. Uh, Just the time of my life down there. We had so much fun became then, a, I'm not going to say an obsession, but it was certainly, it sort of put the sort of physical aspect into my goals and vision about working internationally. And when you're the Secretary General of Swedish Rugby, of course, you become involved. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud that I, I was actually awarded a bronze medal within European rugby and ne- never played it. But um, I, there was, <laughs> I had an idea about a European club competition below the six nations they have the parker pen challenge heineken cup it was called back then i actually don't know what it's exactly called right now but there was like no club competitions for the 30 plus countries below the top seven eight countries of europe and instead of well and then the european uh, rugby federation fira instead of them doing it, they just asked me well can you do it then so yeah sure so i started writing it and we sent invitations and Ended up having a competition with 20 plus countries. We had the final in split Croatia. They awarded, they, they assigned me the, the technical supervisor. And again, I, I didn't know much about rugby at the time, but just had a blast. I had, it was so much fun. And, and again, a Polish team won. Um, and then I was awarded the, the, the bronze medal of European rugby uh, for, for what I did sort of. So certainly enjoyed my five years and, and the, the sort of international feeling grew as the sport director of Swedish volleyball. I mean, it was the same. We went across Europe, played everywhere from Georgia to Canary Islands for uh, Olympic beach volleyball qualifications and this and that. I have some, some amazing stories from those times. Going over to golf and, and getting to know sort of club from a very different perspective, an amazing sort of learning journey for me personally. Uh, ending up now at CMAE, um, having five incredible years. Uh, not all good, of <laughs> course. We have we've certainly had our challenges, but but right now, just feeling really happy with with where we are and where we're heading. Coming back to when you say about being in Australia, was there a moment that mm. you can pick out that really caused kind of like a big catalyst that made you start off on this journey? Well, maybe not this journey, but I have this this moment. That I, that I can still recall after my uh, after a couple of months read some sports psychology sports politics and planning etc um, I, I went on a backpacking tour like you do when you're mm-hmm. down in Australia I was sitting one evening speaking to this American guy and he spoke about how he would change the world with alchemy and blah 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 I mean I've, I don't remember all the details I do remember alchemy which just like what, what's he talking about and then after that discussion, I realized we had it in English. So that was, for me, a Swedish guy, you know, starting to think in English, starting to act. So it, it sort of, it, it came alive. It just sort of felt like a, a very much a real dream of let, let's become sort of, it, this is not, I'm not saying Sweden is too small, definitely not. But it was more about, this is an international, I, I'm, I want to do something international. It's taking it's taking years to get there, but it, it was certainly sort of the moment that I can still recall when it came to language and, and the feeling of this is this this comes natural to me now. This is this, I don't have to 
well, in order to find some words sometimes. But now actually, Ed, what happens is I struggle in Swedish. I don't find the right <laughs> words when I speak to my friends over here since since my, my daily language and even the language in the evening often as well, it's English. No, I, I, to be honest, part of the education wasn't amazing. It was It was great to be there. I was so happy that there was no other Swedes around. Because I had some friends, you know, they, they go abroad and they go into the Swedish club and they hang out in the evenings. You're like, why do you leave Sweden to hang out with Swedes? That's crazy. So I, I did I did have an amazing time. I still have some friends uh, from from that 20, over 20 years ago that we talk every now and then. Great time. That's really interesting that it was a language thing. That is what kind of started that thought pattern of looking at, yeah, a wider opportunity of what there is internationally absolutely so i'm guessing when uh, you you've been doing your commentating on eurosport that's probably in swedish though it is it is i um that was that was actually quite fun because volleyball was a lot quite a lot on eurosport um a bunch of years ago and i was in the role of sport director of swedish volleyball and they asked me who could comment and I sent them the best contact that I knew because he was really good and he did it for a while. And then he left Sweden and I just left that that job. So they came back to me and just said, hey, do you know anyone else? No, no I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> and, I, and I went in and, and um, yes, I certainly enjoyed it. I Even in rugby, I actually did some commentary at stadiums for people that didn't know rugby because it's quite technical. And for Swedish people that are not grown up watching rugby you haven't played rugby you have no idea what a ruck and a mall or or how many points do you get now again and i mean they they have no idea so i tried to sort of make it easy to understand for people that don't know it i i thought i had a quite a good quite a good bridge between the for for beginners and also giving the 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 good people something but of course, I needed a real expert in rugby in order to understand it. Volleyball was my sport. That's what I've been doing as a coach, as a player. I, I, I thought I was quite decent, which I, I became the expert commentary. So on, on Eurosport, I actually did the whole job myself. I did both the sort of easy commentary, like this is what happened, but I also tried to analyze mm. it. So I was I was both. But when, when I was doing volleyball for, for the Swedish national team, we had a guy doing the the broadcast and then I was just focused on doing the expert commentary. And I actually really enjoyed it. Magnus and I, we were a really good team because he's a great commentator. He's He's got a fantastic voice and I could just focus on the specifics of sort of why that happened and, and things. When I did Eurosport, it's, it's a bit tougher in a way because you still, you want to do some expert commentary, but you're also just delivering the broadcast for your everyday person. So, but but I I do I did love that challenge and it it certainly sort of helped me in the way of speaking fluently, thinking about how to express myself, etc. And maybe most of all the preparation. Mm. I never went in without having a couple of pages written down, details on every player um, needed to have some, like a story on each and every one of them, even if it's about their mother or. <laughs> one fun thing with with names is quite interesting because when you're uh, i think it was was one team from well let's not go into exactly what country let's just say the the names were pretty difficult to pronounce uh, so i gave them nicknames instead mm. <laughs> <laughs> and i i, I yeah. <laughs> just like they were the real nicknames yeah. like yeah uh, good planning wise to do I think in some ways it's a special skill set to be able to commentate on a sport you know quite well, but do it f- for an audience who maybe don't. The odd time I do watch golf on TV, if my wife's in the room, I spend half the time translating what the commentators are saying. Because when you watch golf, if you watch it from perspective of thinking, if I don't know what they're talking about, no wonder people don't watch golf who aren't golfers because it's they may as well be, be talking in hieroglyphics because it's all these obtuse jargon yeah, that they use yeah. all the time. Well, and, and to be honest, I actually did um, a magazine, a golf magazine. The, the person who was going to do it for Eurosport was sick and they knew that I had some skills in it. So they asked me if I wanted to do it. I, in a, some sort of strange way, I accepted it. And now looking back, that was awful. 
it was so difficult compared to I mean my skill set in volleyball etc because I'm, I'm not a great golfer I love to play golf but trying to comment and I had no expert skills on it and I didn't even know the players there were Swedish players on a Swedish course and I hadn't played the course so you're like I didn't uh, and there was no sort of text I was the one that was going to give the context and they didn't have a script oh. for me so was, <laughs> ah. oh, oh I don't like that I get a bad feeling even thinking about it now but yes, you're right. Um, it takes a certain skill set. When it comes to Eurosport and volleyball, many people who watched were their own sort of experts. So I could, I still think I, I, I was a pretty good bridge between the expert skills and trying to make it a bit more mainstream. But it certainly, it, it was fun to watch it because I had two monitors, one that I get to watch two seconds before you guys do. Mm, that's interesting. And then I also, and then they, they, they sort of, and I get to see the replay, which you don't. So I actually get some extra, so I can, it, it sounds pretty good sometimes when, when I know things that you don't sort of, and I'm still just sitting in a studio in Sweden and the game is being played in Brazil or whatever it is. Right. So, but yeah, it was scary the first couple of times. And after that, it was just, I, I loved it. Well, once you've done it a couple of times, you kind of know what's, gonna happen how it's gonna flow yeah and how to prepare i think it's more of that as well because the first time you're you're sort of over prepared and and you don't know what to expect so you want to have x y and z and oh i wonder if i can do that can i send the messages can i do this can i do that should i sit there and google should i do i mean whatever it whatever it's about and then you become much more confident and then you just have to make sure you're not overconfident because suddenly you're sitting there without the stories you're sitting there without if you're sort of going away from script, etc. So I think it's um, it's certainly to know, you know, you know, your A to Z and what's important and what to bring and not one one tough day. I did six and a half hours on one day mm. and then you learn <laughs> how to drink, what to drink, because it's it's uh, I mean, it's not like an athlete. You can't compare it to that, but it's uh, it's certainly it's certainly a tough challenge to try and do commentary. And it's only you and your voice for six and a half hours. Definitely need a good voice then. Mm. And and to feel good about yourself. <laughs> yeah. You can't be angry at yourself. You're like, oh, I, sh oh, I shouldn't have said that. Ah, that would be um, tough to look I suppose, at. Yeah, I suppose it's a minor thing. But if you're commentating on a match for an hour, maybe, well, you need to keep drinking so your voice is lubricated as such but not too much mm. that you need to go to the bathroom after 45 minutes. Yeah, you yeah, you definitely don't want to do that. No <laughs> no 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 breaks. You you've heard it some I mean on golf you sort of have to because it's so long, yeah. right? But they they often even have two teams or something on 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 those broadcasts on the 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 long live ones. Yeah. Uh, we had an we had an amazing commentator in Sweden called Joran Sakrisson. He's he just passed away last year I think here and but just listening to his voice and he had these stories from from all over and, and uh I'll never go down in history like him, but uh, amazing to to listen to. So definitely one of my sort of idols within within commentary. Do you feel then that's also helped you with the preparation, the public speaking, having to have the expert side of talking about it as an expert, but also being able to take concepts and make them simpler? I definitely think that um, the commentary made me more confident in myself. Yes, I definitely also believe that since I've, I've done a lot of public speaking, I go up on stage, I know it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine. Big moments, you're always nervous, but it's it's for me, it's a good nervousness. It means that it means something for me. Yes, definitely from a preparation perspective, um, definitely also from sort of knowing your audience, knowing what you should do in order to prepare for it. In a lot of ways, also speaking, just just plain speaking, just just know that you can you go with the flow. Things will be fine. Just go with it. And sometimes taking a little break, breathe, not speak. It's not dangerous. A lot of people just say the awkward silence. I actually enjoy silence. I think you can you can work with silence and not with silence as a power tool, because some want to sort of use it against you or some sort but but actually i think silence in a presentation on as a commentator on on tv and um, here you and me i'm okay with that i i just i enjoy it sometimes i don't 
feel that I have to say th- something in order to just get that moment off. Uh, I don't have to laugh awkwardly in order to to break the silence or something like that. And I I I do think if you're if you don't have that sort of calmness to your person, you feel sort of obliged to go there. You want you want to break that silence because you, ooh, <laughs> it's dangerous. No, it's not. It isn't. Use it. But yeah, I know that comes by training and training a lot. And that's why some people get paid quite a lot to do some great speaks because they can use that that sort of, well, not just the silence. They, they would have a message too. But yes, um, it definitely helped me in, in more ways than one, I think, with uh, the Eurosport. It's been a, it's been a great... I, mean, I, I still am the commentator of volleyball of, of Eurosport in Sweden or the Nordic region, but we have very little volleyball on right now mm. hopefully it will come again because we uh, we just the female volleyball player of the year in europe this year is swedish so she's she's mm. amazing she might be the well she is one of the best in the world so there's obviously a skill trained aspect to being a public speaker and being okay with silence do you think there's a cultural factor there as well like in the uk stereotypically we hate awkward silences hence a lot of people do just talk or people love throwing in ums and ums all the time just to fill the void mm. culturally in scandinavia in general i think silence and just sitting contemplatively maybe seems more natural not natural but part of the culture to be okay with it good observation i think um, in finland silence is more valued than in sweden i think in sweden you you do try to cover the awkward silence, but you're, you're probably right. You British are, are strange, <laughs> so it might be, it might definitely be a cultural thing. But when when it comes to also public speaking, etc., I don't think that that's as much sort of cultural Swedish or Finnish, or you still need to to use it. But maybe it's as you say, it might come more natural uh, for us here up in the Scandinavian region, where not as many people, it's not that crowded. So silence, sometimes you just have to sort of work with silence from time to time. But I probably have been one of those that tried to fill the void. That's what I'm what I'm saying. It's yeah. it's taking time to get there. It's taken, well, years um, in order to come to a position where you can even just like this, be relaxed and talk about it and discuss and, and, and feel and reflect and also in order to just say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is 100% cultural, but I don't think so. Well, that ability... But the Finnish, Finnish people are special, though. But let's not... Sorry, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've read um, a couple of books on Kimi Raikkonen, and he's quite prodigious in his ability just to... Well, A, sleep everywhere and anywhere at any time of day, apparently, and also just mm. not speak. Wow. Yeah, he had an amazing career, Kimi. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, well, I think that's what made him such a fan favorite was because he came because he didn't talk much. <laughs> that, that when he did speak, he wasn't going to. He didn't. Why is that words. something you're famous for? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, you can be famous on what you say or what I'd you don't say. say. Yeah. We we have Slatan, so whatever he says becomes a a global thing. So. Yeah. One the one name superstar. Yeah. Well. When you speak about yourself in third person, <laughs> that that's a special. That that takes a certain skill. I'm not there yet. No, you're not going to start referring to yourself in the third person as Toby. Toby thinks. No, that would be very awkward. <laughs> it would be very awkward. It's interesting that there's self confidence part. I think interesting because you can go too far as well, like you were saying earlier about not having been prepared. That you can almost be the point of well, I, I know my stuff. I know what I'm doing. And you don't then prepare. And that's when, and I think, I feel that do, does happen to people where there's almost yeah, too much confidence. Well, I mean, overconfidence also often, not always, but often um, equals that you might not be a great listener, that you might, no, no, I know how things happen. I, I know what's going to happen here. So I'm not interested in your opinion, right? So um, I do think that confidence, like self-confidence is very important. You have to believe in yourself as a manager or or as an employee um, or as a board of t- um, or board member or whoever you are yes please have a good self confidence but at the same time be curious 
be a, be a great listener, love people, because if you don't do those things or, or you have, like you say, overconfidence, Hey, I already know how to run the show. So I'm not, psh, I don't care what you have to say. Cause I know best I'm because I believe so much in myself. Well, then you're doing it the wrong way, right? It's one thing to, to really believe in your abilities. And it's one thing to then understand that you're never perfect and you're never going to be. But you can, you can strive for perfection. You can, we talk often about operations excellence, um, where you want to make sure that your operation is as smooth, as perfect as possible. For, I mean, within the club industry that we are, we're talking about as good as your club can be, which is, doesn't mean that your club is the best in the world. It's not about that. But with your resources, try to be as perfect as you can. But if you're overconfident, yes, you often can come up with that, that person with perhaps a big, too, too big of an ego or there are other names for a person like that that are overconfident and tr often shows it. It's interesting you mentioned listening. I just heard a talk with a guy called Julian Treasure, who's a speaking coach and he's got, I think it's the third most viewed TED talk of all time. And he had a great quote, which is hearing is a capability listening is a skill which i thought was a good way of mm. of putting it it's just because you hear people does not mean you've actually listened and, and taken it in no 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 two very different things smart guy that one mr treasure yeah no i, I mean i come from what is it 60 plus of education weeks in the last couple of years where i've been fortunate to facilitate and meet some amazing people um, colleagues of yours in the club industry, the people who really listen and take in, and you can see almost like the brains working and going on full, you notice those people and, and a lot of people hear what we say, but then it's about listening and, and making something out of it. And, and that's, that is certainly a skill. It's not, it's not a skill that's just easy to acquire. You have to work with it. So, uh, yeah, no, I hear you. I'm listening. Well, that's why I think reflection is such a key part of that, say, with the education courses as well, is that if you afterwards look at your notes, reflect on what you've learned that day, how it's different to maybe what you believed or what you thought before, and be willing to sit with that dissonance of being challenged where you believe things should be done and then critically reflecting on that experience that's then the learning but you can only get that from listening you nailed another one there ed reflection is certainly key i am um, going back a couple of years reflection was definitely not a part of my my greatest skill set i was just so busy and and telling myself that i was so busy so i didn't really do it starting to understand that this is actually something that needs to happen every day every week not being the most spontaneous person always, I had to sort of uh, plan in my diary to be spontaneous, which meant I just had to plan to reflect because otherwise it just didn't happen. You just go on to the new thing and the new thing. Coming from small organizations, uh, always enjoyed working in small organizations, there's always things to do. And quite often you're very good at just going on to the next project, going to the next course, knowing to go into the next, in my case, perhaps traveling to the next club and, and not stopping after a meeting, reflecting on it. Now I write and write and write and write. Every, every time I have a conversation, every time I have a meeting, I sit with a book and I read. If I, if I don't write it down, it's sort of, I just go on to the next. And then I take my book and I go through it and from like a week back and I read and I reflect. If it's something that I then feel now and nothing more needs to be done, I actually cross it over and then I, I sort of move to the next thing. That's my way of doing it. It's not the right way. It's not the wrong way. It's my way. But I do think that whatever it is, if it's a learning opportunity, you're, you're going on a course with us. You've visited a, a, another club, met a, a colleague, and some ideas came up. Write them down. You're not going to remember it a week later or a year later. It pops back into your mind. I mean, our minds are, are amazing things. Like, but, and it came really hard for me. It took, it, it took a long time to get there. Um, probably still have a lot of work to do, but 
it's it's at least um, a way that it seems to be working for me so so reflection is certainly key it is and i'm also a big fan of handwriting stuff down but one thing i have started using which i found incredibly useful is the voice dictation on my iphone so i'll just say siri take a note in my reflection notebook and then i can just say something into it to then prompt me whenever i do have time to actually sit down and properly reflect on it otherwise as you say just you know it pops up if it's first thing in the morning and you might not be doing it until that night or the next day it's easy to forget but i found that as a useful way of just getting stuff down in order to properly reflect on it later do you do you listen to your own voice then do you like your own voice i've been forced to listen to it rather a lot recording <laughs> these podcasts and and true true thankfully it doesn't grate on me overly so i don't mind listening to myself but the voice dictation that mm. i use my phone it actually writes it out for me rather than a voice ah. memo and i find with the good thing with iphone is that after you've done it a few times and then you've corrected it it then actually learns from those corrections to get it correct one thing i found i think personally what helps with the voice dictation is working overseas in countries where people are, who are reporting to me english maybe isn't their first language i have learned to mm. speak better in the sense of slower more articulate to be able to be understood a little bit easier i, I find that then probably helps me speak more clearly which makes it more tolerable to listen to and it's something i've worked on as well true true no no you have yeah. to do that a lot of people i think me included don't always sort of love listening to your own voice at, at least not a second time around because of course we listen to it now and we're yeah. speaking all the time and we hear it but i hear you um, good idea I, I might look into that I'm, I'm still i'm still the paper pen guy so um yeah but we we keep develop we keep upgrade maybe go to version 3.0 of, of myself yeah. then well i do like the paper pen the other thing i don't like about it mm. is my handwriting is truly horrendous <laughs> which which is something i do actually practice to try and improve it but it's it's just that's what i'd much rather listen to my voice and see my own handwriting i think would be uh, <laughs> where i am with with that and i do remember things much better when i handwrite them and there's loads of science into this that you do remember better when you handwrite than when you just type so i do tend to i have a bookshelf literally lined with notebooks of of, of stuff when i did my master's degree i kept handwritten notes so i've got like 12 notebooks from that plus from everything else and on the sort of, I do have one type of notebook I buy it. Sadly, I did research into the best types of notebooks and <laughs> to find the one that has uh, a high quality paper and a bunch of other things and page numbers already written in it. Well, it, it is still, it, it is still why we print workbooks on our courses that actually, because we know the power of just paper and pen and, and for the, for the learning aspect, um, for people, then you still get it as on the app so you some people don't want to do that still they just want to make notes on on the ipad or whatever which is of course fine it's up to, up to you as a person but but it's definitely why we're still printing it it's not because we want to save money um because that that <laughs> does not <No>. do that <laughs> one quick note on note taking is what i found really useful is i have a index in front of my page of my notebook so i'll write down page 27 is reflections on my podcast with toby or whatever it might be and then mm. on the front if i know what i'm looking for and which notebook it's in i can just open up and i know what page numbers are on that's why i buy a notebook which has uh, page numbers written on it otherwise you just endlessly trawl through your notebook collection to find what you're looking for i would be under that category <laughs> mr chapman so um, i might might consider that too i suppose you could uh, number it yourself but uh, the idea of of having a yeah, I like mm. that. It would make it easier yeah. to find whatever it is, especially if you're uh, pretty good with uh, writing a couple of pages on certain things while you're doing it. So, yeah, no, I like that. Yeah. Uh, liked term, I, I think like is how you pronounce it, or liked term is the notebooks that have that in them. <laughs> so, you've, you've talked already about running over 60 <laughs> MDP courses. Why is education so important in the club industry for you? What, what's if someone was listening to this and they've maybe not been on one of the courses and they've maybe not even mm. thought about education 
as something to do? I think all industry have their own sort of challenges. All industries have their own um, pathways. We in the club industry have an amazing sort of product because we we get to meet members, we get to meet guests that are coming to enjoy themselves. They're coming to the club. They want to have they want to have fun in most cases. They want to be in in some cases entertained. They want to do perhaps their main hobby, play golf, or they want to play curling. They want to just have a bite to eat, etc. Um, so we're very fortunate within our industry because we get a lot of happy people. With that said, we're not always overcrowded with staff. We tend to do a lot of things on our own. We, um, at a lot of clubs, you have, if you're a GM or you have a management position, you're not a big team around that. You, you're, you're doing again, a lot of, a lot of things on your own. I believe that education, which for, for us, a big, big thing is the networking aspect to get to know that you're, you're, you're not alone, whether it's a big fancy club with a f- amazing name that people know of or if you're a small club in the countryside no one has ever heard of you have the same sort of challenges you have the same sort of issues when it comes to dealing with the everyday running of the club yes there's different skill sets needed there's different ways of doing customer service there's different ways of doing this and that but it's still about taking care of the member. It's taking care of the guest, making them have one of the best days of their lives. And of course, but you, you can you can perhaps do, you do it in, again. You do it in a lot of different ways. But I do think that a lot of people come into the club industry without any education. We we are a very natural sort of second career for people because again, it's their hobby, and they're like, "Oh, I want to work with my hobby." That oh, sounds amazing. I've had so many discussions through the years in Sweden, um, especially because that was more local. Now I have an international role, so I don't have the, the local discussions as much. Um, where someone just go, "Oh, I'm I'm thinking about go- becoming a golf club manager. W- what do you think? What should I think of, etc." And a lot of them come in because they want to play golf. They're not there because they want to do a great job uh, making money for the golf club or working every day. Saturdays and Sundays for the next 20 years. That's not what they think of. They think they know this is my hobby. I enjoy it when I go to the club. I want to work here. So I do think that getting first and foremost a base, a foundation um, of, of a skill set in order to tackle the different problems that will occur for everyone coming into the industry, it certainly would give you a, a better preparation for stepping into the certain role. I think there's great courses, three years, you, you do a sports marketing degree, you can do this, you can do that. And you so you can be prepared in different ways. But actually working at the club, it is very different from, from doing studies. So I, I do believe that uh, what, what we do has been created by managers for managers. So it gives you an understanding of everything that is applicable um, to be aware of when you come into the club in order then to to be able to to analyze it and, and to use it. But I think I still think the networking, just see 20 other people and they have the same issues, they have the same thoughts um, as you have when they come to our educations. Um, it certainly became very valuable for people to, to find their own family uh, within the industry be able to when something happens because things happen at clubs it always does it might not be the exact same thing as the next club over the road but there's been so you want to have someone to to bounce things off and you can't always do that with your board or your president or captain the governance structure doesn't always allow that within clubs and we do have a quite a old traditional governance model that most countries have, not all of them. Um, England, Scotland, Ireland specifically, I would say, that, that sort of comes from, from hundreds of years of that governance model. It's being, it's, it's 
slowly changing, it's evolving, but volunteers, it, it has its challenges working with them. Very many people that come into the industry have never done that before. So they, they don't have that sort of understanding of how passionate someone can be on a board and they believe it's their club and how you would tackle that. So with education, you would prepare that sort of transition. And I'm not saying either to, to do it before, because it's very tough to, to get that understanding if you haven't been working. But as soon as you're sort of up and running and, and been working there for a while, I think it's, it's important to do some sort of education to get, that, to get that networking going and the understanding to know what to expect. Yeah, I think there's two parts there, especially that resonate a lot with me and I'm sure other people. The networking side of it is huge, I think. I believe that any issue I'm going to face in my career would have happened 99.9% certainty to someone else or at another club. I think it's yeah. very rare to be a truly yeah. unique scenario. Well, if, as you say, if I've been on MDPs with other people or just the general tribe of the CMEE, well, to be able to just call someone up or message a group, there's that also that there's that yeah. trust you feel as well within that, that you can be open and ask these things, and you know, it's going to stay within that group of people. And someone may have faced it, have some ideas, or they can put you on to someone else. I think that's certainly one of the, the powerful aspects. And I think another part of being in a room with other managers, I think most of us have some level of imposter syndrome that we face or feel not every day, maybe, but sometimes. But sometimes mm. being in a room of other yeah. people and seeing actually, oh, I'm not that different to them. I mean, I had this, not the CMEE um, specific example, but when I did my master's degree, it was online. And the first week was mm. introdu introducing yourself online and people writing, oh, I'm the CEO of Dubai Expo 2020. I'm this CFO of this multi-billion dollar company. And I'm there going what on earth am I doing with these people in, in the same degree? But by the end of the week, when we had our first topic of discussion and debate, people, those people commenting on my answer positively that they'd learned from it, that sort of got, kind of settled me into, oh, actually, okay, I'm, I am able to do this with them. I think it's the same thing with CME. If you're, you've got the yeah. club manager of X number one golf club in the world or in the UK or whatever it might be, and you speak to them, mm. okay, yes, they have a skill set maybe above yours, but or different to yours, but they're a person and you can see the similarities that I think makes you feel more that you belong, especially maybe if you're coming into the club industry as a second career as well, that can help. Yeah, and the, and, and they've had their pathway perhaps, and they've they've done this and they've done that. So they're they're able to share and give you pointers on, on your on your pathway, on your journey. Um but yes, the the imposter syndrome is 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 often it's always there, always ready to jump on you if you're not ready. Certainly, an an, an interesting one. Um, but we do get a lot of people into the industry, so for us, it it is very important. There's a lot of influx, but also people leaving it. Um, they're they're sort of understanding, but but it has to do with the fact that you don't know what you're getting yourself into. I think if you if you would know, then you could prepare very differently, and you would do a, you would sort of, you would attack it in a different way, compared to what a lot of people do. But it also has to do with the governance model. I, I mean, we we know that now during COVID, golf boomed in in almost all countries because, of course, it was a perfect activity to do outdoors. Normally, you actually you are not that close because people aren't that good playing, <laughs> so you you're sort of all over the place. Mm, but still, a lot of people also after or or during COVID or after COVID, a lot of managers left their clubs uh, because they they still felt power powerless and and not be able to to cope with everything, and and a lot of it had to do with an old governance model. Again, not saying that just changing that would solve everything; that it wouldn't. We we need to to drive up the status of the job. We need to have better salaries. We might have to take. We have to 
charge for the product, which like in Sweden, we are not good at doing that at all. The annual fee is ridiculously low compared to many other countries, which just means that you have fewer employees to do the full job. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's tough, um, but certainly interesting. So with the governance, you have the Institute of Directors, which will be education courses that many people who are serving on boards in the corporate world will go on. Do you feel that there's potential space within the club world to have some kind of, even if it's a one day rather than a five day MVP style education mm-hmm. opportunity for, and it, for people who serve on boards, as you say, that they're so passionate and they'll often serve uh, some bigger clubs. They'll serve a number of years in a smaller committee before they move on to the, the board that's maybe six years they're committing to and maybe they've served mm. on boards in which case maybe they don't need the education although as you say golf or clubs are, are different tend to be do you feel there's space for that kind of well i mean the swedish sports model is based on volunteers uh, volunteer coaches volunteer board members volunteers all over the place when it comes to events so the the, the force and power of the volunteer is amazing um, and if everyone was paid, wow, <laughs> that would that would of course be amazing. But uh, um, it would be it would be too much. I um, we do have that sort of education in Sweden. There are, as you say, a number of places that that offer daily daily education. Or there are federations, golf federation, tennis federations that offer board education or board seminars or in Sweden, we have a specific even education body within Swedish sports and they focus a lot on the volunteers. They focus a lot on the board members. It's just very difficult because even if, like you say, there might be a six year wait until you get on the main board and then you're on the main board for a number of years before you you go away. Uh, But if we're talking about a manager coming in and out, at boards, there's a lot of people that just come in and out. So it's an ongoing journey of education that should be applied year out, year in. And that's very rarely on the radar from themselves, which again, then leaves the fact that, well, we have responsibility as managers to make sure it's on the radar. It should be on the agenda, not because the board is bad, the board is good. It's just because they should be curious. They should be interested as a board to develop, uh, as a board to continue to educate themselves in order to provide the members with a better product year by year. It's just that it's sometimes <laughs> it's not that hands-on. And when you're a volunteer, you want to see something happen during your time at the board. Um, so you, you often get people that are more focused on looking at the operational part of, of the club compared to just the strategic one, uh, where they, where you see a, a great board focusing on strategy, there's probably a manager or, or a previous manager that worked really hard on getting the board to understand that or a president that comes in, there's some amazing people across the club industry that fully understand why the board is there, why the captain is there, why the the president is there. But too many people don't understand that actually becoming a board member, you're you're, you're suddenly um, responsible for employees, you're responsible for a GM, and you actually, there's HR involved. And in smaller clubs where you don't have an HR department, which almost every every club, um, and with that responsibility, yeah, that's um, a lot of people are not ready for it, and they don't sign up on a paper saying that yes, I ex- I accept the responsibilities of becoming a board member. No, there's sometimes people even they they ah, you should be on the board, Ed. Come on, you know, oh, we need you. You're great. Come on, give me, give us, please. Come on, and, and you're like, okay, fine, without really understanding what what's behind it. Um, more introductions or more inductions would be fantastic. Um, we're trying to do our part by providing it to the managers in order to do it. Should there be even more? Yeah, we, we even us as a management association believe that we want to do more with managers and board members. 
but then the manager has to choose to bring his board or to bring his president, which is always has to be up to them. So it's it's not it's not the easy street. It's it's definitely a challenge in order to get there. Mm. Yeah, lots of good points made there, and as you say, it's getting them on board to want to come and do these courses themselves as well. It's not always easy. Mm. Yeah, and you have all the horror stories. I had a manager who wanted to do a club manager program. So the board said, no, we believe you have enough skills to run our club. Okay, I'll, I'll bring that to my next uh, salary discussion then, please. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's, um, mm. it, is, it is tough sometimes, but well, we have to develop. Otherwise, we, 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 we go backwards. You yeah, know that. what's that? Alice in Wonderland quote, around here, you've got to run twice as fast just to stay in the same spot. Nice, yeah. nice. Good one, Ed, good one. What, you've obviously met a lot of top club managers. What are the non-obvious skills that they possess? <laughs> what they do that's different, that's maybe not something that people would expect. Obviously, they're great leaders. They've got great operational skills, great communicators. Is there anything that you've found? Yeah. The communicational skills is obvious, like you say. So that's definitely not a non-obvious one. An eye for detail among the best ones. You, I get to walk with a lot of them. I would say that what always sort of stands out is the people skills. They know the names, they know the people, they tell them, they give the little sort of gentle pat on the back. They, they just give a comment or two, always positive. When they walk, when, they, when, when, when sort of going around the place, they're still visible. So even though they are in a meeting with me, we're talking about things, you still see the eye contact, you still see the sort of I see you. Um, and they steal the eye for detail. If there's a candy wrapper lying around somewhere, they'll see it. They'll take it. And they'll not tell someone to remove it. They'll do it themselves. So I, I would say that within that, you have a, a number of things in order that they are still great listeners. We talked about listening skills before, um, but also seeing people and not necessarily meaning communication-wise, but just doesn't mean that it doesn't matter if you're cleaning if you're the in the reception if you're behind the counter the food and beverage the hospitality team they see you and that is a sir that's a definite skill to have and and not just moving around so they actually know that it means something that he or she sees you doing your job and then the other non-obvious is that at least the ones that I've been fortunate enough to see around their club, because often I get to meet some great people, but we are somewhere doing a course at the hotel. It's fun surroundings. We're, it's, we're learning together for a full week. Then they, they're a certain person, but then they go back to the club and then you see them in action. They're often different to, to when you're on a training course, right? But the ones that I've seen, um, just lost my train of thought. I, it was one, one, um, one little skill that I was thinking of. Yes, now I remembered it. Good. It's that they make you feel great or they make you feel like, even though I, we might just be chatting about something, but you just feel good. It's about the way they handle the discussion. And that's certainly, it might be within the communication skill set, um, but sort of they treat you in a way. So it, it's not about giving you the best service, but it's about being present. It's about being there. You know, they have a busy schedule. It doesn't matter because they're there right now with you. And that is a skill. Mm -hmm. Because you know those people where you're sort of suddenly their phone is beeping or the, the, they're looking at their watch or they're whatever it is, they're not paying full attention. Um, you've lost me. But those people never do. And if they have to, they will let you know. If they have to take a call, if they have to answer someone, you will know that it's not because of you. 
so we're back at people skills i, I assume but but it's um yeah that is certainly a skill set which not all not all have mm, it's interesting it makes me think of johnny wilkinson the rugby player his new definition of high performance he's come to in recent years is being a hundred percent present in the activity he's doing that's his definition of high mm. performance so for him if he's washing the dishes if he's with his family or if it's running his businesses being a hundred percent present in that is what matters which i think the golden boot wilkinson, golden boot wilkinson yeah. yeah that is the i think that's a really beautiful definition of high performance because that then ties into that ability to be so present that the person feels that you are the only thing that matters in the world to them at that moment mm. yeah no you're right and i <clears throat> if we're talking about um a person within our industry that everyone knows now and th that started on your podcast here um, a couple of weeks ago <laughs> mr mm. patterson um his way of doing things is always giving a hundred percent in the now. I mean, if it's a kid, you, I mean, we've all heard his stories, but they are true. We know how he acts, uh, and he's giving them a hundred percent of himself in, in every moment. I've, I've spent days and evenings with him. I've seen him in action and how he uses his, uh, pen and paper still at every dinner. If he's having a conversation with someone, he's ready to take notes. He's always ready. Uh, must be a bit exhausting, but he's, he's, his energy level is just, yeah, he's in another world. But he is a high performer per se, I would say. So I, I like that definition from, from Johnny. And it's, um, I think it's a key point you say there about having I, the I notepad and pen. If you're talking to someone and they get out a notepad and pen to take a note, no one's offended by that. But if they pull out their phone, even if they are taking a note, you just assume really they're probably messaging someone. Yes, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So true. Uh, some so really true. good insights mm. there mm. on that, Toby. Well, I want to be respectful of your time today. I've really appreciated you taking the time for this conversation. And I know from your luminar that you are modest about yourself and your own achievements and you do move praise onto others and your team, but I'd like to just on behalf of probably everyone who's done a MDP in the last five years, thank you for your hard work and achievements within that sphere and the CMAE for what you've done there. They've certainly benefited me greatly when I've done them. So well done. And thank you very much for that. Well, thanks, Ed. I do love that part of my job to spend time with you and, and your colleagues um, at an MDP or wherever we are. Um, the one thing I miss from my current job compared to my last one is I could then take my car and I go down to your club and I sit down and have a coffee and just listen and enjoy myself. That is the one thing I do miss. Um, but those weeks of MDP, when we go somewhere and we have a blast um, while we're learning again, I, I've, I've listened to some of those presenters so many times. I still love it. I still learn every time something. But yes, well, thank you, Ed. I, um, I do love my job. Yeah, no, that certainly comes across when you do your presentations and when you're at, when you speak about it. So thank you for your time today. It's been a very good conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Ed. Keep up the good work. Look forward to seeing you soon again. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we dive into the world of club management. I hope you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. If you do enjoy and get value from them, I have two small requests. Simply subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening app and leave a review and share it directly with someone whom you think would benefit from listening. If you're interested in being a guest on this show yourself, then you can reach out to me using the details in the show notes or email me modernclubmanagement at pm.me. In the show notes, you will also find a link to my bi-weekly newsletter that complements these conversations where you can sign up to receive these directly into your inbox so that you never miss out. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing day. This episode is brought to you by Sueda. Sueda is the social learning platform that delivers high quality blended learning with human connection. Sueda is on a mission to revolutionize the digital learning space through restoring the critical element of human engagement 
that has gotten lost in online learning. The technology provides everything organisations or individuals need on one single platform to achieve meaningful long-term learning success. Using these skills helped me attain a job offer as the Director of Golf at Golf Digest Top 100 in the World Ranked course after I completed their Influence and Communication courses. But don't just take my word and the 97% 5 star reviews it has had on Trustpilot for it, try it yourself. All you have to do is email david at suada.com, that's S-U-A-D-A.com, and quote the Modern Club Management Podcast to claim your free enrollment onto the Reciprocity course to start your journey to become a more influential and persuasive communicator.